Hey, I'm Todd, coming to you from the uh, Sports Review and Spirituality Library here in Verona, Wisconsin, in this apartment. And uh, due to the lightning storm last night, we had a little bit more static electricity in the air. So, um, but it's better than the snow. Well, I'm going to be reading out of Packer's Pride. And it seems like people really like this book, so I do too. And uh, the book is by Leroy Butler, Packer Hall of Famer, but also National Football League Hall of Famer. And uh, he's one of the best Packers ever that I can ever remember, that's for sure. So it's called Packers Pride, Green Bay Greats with their favorite memories, Robert Reichel. Forward by one of the best Packers ever, too, Willie Davis. And Green Bay greats share their favorite memory by Triumph Books. Um, so this is on page 111, and I'm going to go up, and it's going to be Mr. Arena about Paul Kaufman. He was one of the greatest tight ends the Packers have ever had. And uh, I'll let you know the story. I'm not going to go. Paul Kaufman can still hear the cheers. All he has to do is close his eyes and flash back three decades to when he was catching touchdowns for the Green Bay Packers. Or he can simply walk through Lambeau Field parking lot. My daughter and I were walking through the parking lot after a game, Kaufman said, and people started recognizing me and yelling, Paul Kaufman, you are the greatest. Now I was losing my hair. And it was graying, and those people still don't forget you. They embrace, embrace their Packers with unconditional love. It's just incredible. Most would describe Kaufman's time in Green Bay as rather incredible. Even though Kaufman hasn't donned a Packer uniform since 1985, it's easy to see why he's never forgotten. Never been forgotten. Undrafted rookie. Undrafted free agent out of Kansas State, Kaufman played in Green Bay from 1978 to 1985, made three trips to the Pro Bowl, Kaufman caught 322 passes and 39 touchdowns in a Packer uniform. He also teamed with quarterback Lynn Dickey and White Oaks, James Lofton, and John Jefferson to form one of the deadliest NFL's deadliest passing attack in the early 80s. And in the strike shortened season in 1982, the Packers averaged 25.1 yards points per game. And all three pass catches were named to the named to the Pro Bowl. Following year, the Green Bay averaged Alright. Sorry about that. I gotta shut this. Otherwise, we get too many dangies going on. And uh, the strike short of the season of this again, 1982 season, the Packers averaged 25.1 points per game, and all three pass catches were named to the Pro Bowl. The following year, Green Bay averaged 26.8 points per game, which was the fourth highest total since they joined the NFL in 1921. Man, that offense was fun to be a part of, said Coffin, who was the, ducted into the Packer Hall of Fame in 1994. 
We had four guys catch over 50 passes one year in 1983. All three of us wound up in the Pro Bowl and Lynn did a great job of getting us the ball. That was something else. Kaufman was something else himself, but few would have ever predicted it. Kaufman was so lightly high re lightly regarded coming out of Kansas State in 1978, he had to persuade former Packer assistant coach John Meyer to give him a tryout. When Meyer visited the campus to work on a different Wildcats player, after Kaufman selected in the 12th round draft, wasn't selected in the 12th round draft, the Packers signed him as a free agent. Kaufman played little his rookie year, but burst into onto the scene of the 56 yard with a 56 catch season in 1979. That was a team record for tight ends until 2012 when Jermichael Finley caught 61 balls. Year in, year out, Kaufman was one of the NFL's most productive tight ends. Aside from the strike shortened 1982 campaign, Kaufman had at least 42 catches and 496 yards in every season. Following his rookie season, he played in all but two games during his Green Bay Packer career. Kaufman lacked great speed and at 6'3", 225 pounds, he was never going to be an overly physical presence, but he had a, phenom a phenomenal football IQ, competed harder than most, and had sensational hands. When his accomplishments are brought up, though, Kaufman is a picture of modesty. Bob Schnelker pays so much attention to detail, Kaufman said of his former offensive coordinator. He didn't assume anything. He was one of the first. He was one of the first people to utilize the tight end, and he was a big reason our offense producer as well as it did. I'm going to stop right there. I'm sorry. I'm going to add something to this. Okay, Bob Schnelker played for the Giants. And he was on those uh, teams the Giants had in the 50s where they were really good and they played the, uh, and they, they won, uh, I'm sorry, they didn't win, but they got to the, they got to the championship game twice against the Colts. But Schnoker was used like a tight end. And I don't think they call him that, but I, he was not a fast receiver because he was usually, uh, he's usually running ball, he's running pass routes over the middle. And, that was the thing, is that's part of the reason that Schelker, Schnelker knew so much about how to get Kaufman open. And, uh, yeah, this is Kaufman one right here. This bio is outstanding. Kaufman's production was never better than in 1983 when he caught 54 passes for 814 yards and 11 touchdowns. Those 11 touchdowns were the most by a Packer receiver since Bill Houghton had 12 and 56. And the only receivers in the NFL with more touchdowns that year were St. Louis, Roy Green, 14, Philadelphia's Mike Quick, 13, and another tight end, Todd Christensen, 12. Included in that memorable season was Kaufman's huge night in the Packers' 48-47 victory over Washington on Monday Night Football. In that game, Kaufman caught six passes for 124 yards and two touchdowns. Kaufman added to his solid career catching 43 balls with nine touchdowns in 1984 <coughs> and 49 passes with six touchdowns in 85. Then the inexplicable happened. 
During training camp in 1986, Forrest Gregg determined Packers needed a youth movement. So he cut 30-year-old Kaufman along with Dickey. To this day, Kaufman remains upset about how his Green Bay days ended. Forrest, he's someone I have nothing to say about, said Kaufman, who split his final seasons between Kansas City and Minnesota. James Lofton went into the Hall of Fame. He mentioned him. I, mean, I guess he's just got more class than I do. Kaufman spent the last several years watching his two sons follow their football dreams. Chase Kaufman has bounced around the NFL. Carson Kaufman is playing in the Arena Football League. Both players have a long ways to go, though, to catch their old man. And if they don't believe it, all that may take... All my tickets had returned to Glambo Field. Going back there and still getting recognized is the is really neat. And uh, said uh, Kaufman, who grew up in Tiny Chase, Kansas. This point here was unbelievable. From my perspective, I was living my dream. From the time I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was play in the NFL. And I was a small town guy and I would have been lost in New York or Los Angeles. So Green Bay was the perfect place for me. Packer fans still feel the same way. Um, I just want to make a couple comments. Yeah, that was a bloodletting day, that freaking when they when they asked uh, Kaufman and Lynn Dickey at the same time, and uh, they had nobody to replace him anyways. Kaufman was 30 years old. Oh, boy. Uh, it's, it's not exactly all, but yeah, Forrest Gregg was out of his mind back then. And, um, you know, he was just, uh, he was speeding off his ego a little bit. But the thing was, for me, was that I saw he's, he's the greatest player, that, greatest player on the line in the NFL history, I would say, but, you know, of course, Greg, but he's, he's crazy. Um, the thing I was going to say is that, you know, they, they talk about these new tight ends that were the uh, new position of the tight end, and, and they talk about uh, three of them here that led the, uh, were on the team. Two more, yeah, two of them, two of, the, two of these guys, two of these guys who had the most receptions, touchdown receptions, Roy Green and Todd Christensen. Roy Green was a uh, defensive back when he first came into the league and I think his first two or three years. And he started playing both ways and then they just put him a receiver. But he had 14 receptions, or 14 touchdowns. Unbelievable. Todd Christensen was moved to tight end, too. And he's the uh, L.A. Raider guy. But he was out of BYU. So he had the pedigree. And he was in a, he was in a passing offense. But the thing was is that he was, a, he was a running back back then. So they drafted him as a running back the Raiders did. And they moved him to tight end. I was. Sometimes that, you know, and... They know what they're doing. They know where to play these guys at and how to move them around and how they'll be most any most effective. So, all right, enough of my comments. On the line, Ron Holster. Ron Holster's views certainly weren't the norm. That was just fine with the Green Bay Packers for 1982 first-round draft choice. Holster, the guard, didn't hit it off with then coach Bart Starr. Also, in the Forest Gregg peacefully coexisted. 
and later Hallstrom butted heads with general manager Ron Wolf. Interestingly, Hallstrom's views more than 100 more Hallstrom's views were 180 degrees from many Packers from that era. That's just how it worked out for me. Star Hallstrom said, Star the Packers head coach and general manager took Hallstrom in the first round of the 1982 draft with a second, 22nd overall pick. At the time, Hallstrom was part of the changing of the guard at the guard position. He was a big man who could move. He had great feet and was extremely fast within a 15-yard box. Hallstrom entered the league at 300 pounds and later played at 320. And because Starr liked his linemen smaller, Hallstrom sat his first two years. That was tough, Hallstrom said. I never totally understood why Bart drafted me in the first place. Drake took over in 1984, though he made the uh, switch to the bigger linemen. And Hallstrom was a fixture at right, right guard the next nine years. While Hallstrom never made a Pro Bowl, he was tough, physical, reliable, and one of the Green Bay's better linemen of that era. I have great respect for Forrest because he gave me this, he gave me my start, Hallstrom said. I can't say anything bad about him. I did have some different experiences with him. Things should probably keep out of the paper. <laughs> but he did a lot of things that helped mold me into an NFL player. The problem was Greg never did mold Green Bay into a winning NFL team. Going 25 and 37 and 1 in his first three years on the job. In fact, the Packers were above 500 in only three of Hallstrom's 11 years in Green Bay and made the playoffs just once in 1982. The losing was hard, said Hallstrom, who had just one surgery during his playing careers. That really can take a toll, but that's the one thing I wish I could change. That's not totally true. 1990, Hallstrom and teammates Ken Ruckers and Rich Moran were all looking to change their contracts. Green Bay had broke the bank on Tony Manners the previous April, and Manners never saw the field during the Packers' 10-6 season in 1989. So, the trio of offensive linemen held out that year. Tony was a product of his environment, Hallstrom said. He was a prototypical guy who knew how to sell a contract. It was Brian Bosworth effect. It helps me on the, and I'm just saying too, it helps me on the front of uh, for the show. I think we had a grocery shop shopping uh, cart with all the food you would eat in one day. And, uh, and on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I swear that's why they drafted him. Unbelievable. So he forgot to put in the steroids he was on. Those, those decisions by Infante played a r large role in Green Bay's 6-10 campaign. And it may have been the beginning at the end for Infante, who won just 10 games over the next two seasons and was fired. With many too many people thought the success he, we were having was because of them, Hallstrom said. It was too individual. That led to the demise of the team. The demise of Hallstrom's Green Bay career came after the 1992 season. The NFL was in its first season of full-fledged free agency, and Hallstrom was hoping for one big final contract. 
Los Angeles Rams offered him 100. One, I'm sorry. Los Angeles Rams offered him one million dollars a year, but he truly wanted to stay in Green Bay, so he turned it down. Holstrom went to then general manager Ron Wolf, asking for a million dollars, figuring that's where the bar had been set. But Wolf wouldn't budge off paying hundred thousand dollars and refused to add a series of incentives to hit the million-dollar mark. So, Alston played one year in Philadelphia, a move he regrets to this day. Our egos didn't hit it off well, Alston said, he and Wolf. And I'm learned, don't let a personal relationship make a business decision for you. I should have just sucked it up. I really wanted to finish my career in Green Bay and should have done that. Instead, I left the league the way you should leave it. You sh Instead, I left the league the way you should leave it. Pissed off. That time, Halston was through plenty of personal crisis. His younger brother had passed away. He found out his mom had cancer, and he's in the process of a divorce with Mary Pat. Right. Let me reread that. And he was in the process of a divorce with his wife, Mary Pat. That year, everything kind of came into perspective, Halstrom said, and the football kind of took a backseat. Halstrom's career, though, doesn't need to take a backseat to anyone's. In a time where Green Bay's franchise lacked stability and steadiness, he was a rock. I'd never take back or change what happened, Halstrom said. It was a great experience. It was really a kickstart to what I'm doing today. I have no qualms. It's easy to see why. When Holstrom arrived in Green Bay years ago, he didn't hunt or fish. He didn't know anything about snowmobiles or four-wheelers. Personal watercraft were a mystery to him. Today, Holstrom's a resident expert on it all as the owner of Ron Holstrom's Sports and Marine in tiny Woodruff, Wisconsin. Located just outside Monaco. It's not the post-football career he ever envisioned coming out of Iowa. After I retired, I looked into a bunch of things, Austin said, and I didn't know anything about this. But it's been good. To some extent, business parallels football. Six months a year, three during the summer and winter, are crazy and intense. The other six are more laid back. In many respects, the Woodruff area is similar to Green Bay. Quiet, peaceful, and steeped in family values. It's just what Halstrom wanted after his 12-year career ended. I love Monaco and my family loves it, Halstrom said. I think you have to be ready for it your whole in your life, and I was. At that time, I had lived the life of a 20, 20 man, a life still, still grateful for today. I had a great time in Green Bay, Halstrom said, and not everything was perfect. It never is. But looking back, I have no complaints. And it was a great experience. So, that's Halstrom. I like that one in particular because they didn't mention who they could have drafted. <laughs> who they could have drafted in 1982. A guy by the name of Ronnie Lott and a guy by the name of Joe Montana. So... You know, I, whenever I see Halstrom, I see those draft picks because I hear people complaining. But in reality, it was the guy was a pretty good player. 
And uh, Rod Wolf was a tough pick to negotiator too. He wasn't going to give an inch, especially to an offensive lineman back then. And uh, that's just the way it was. That's just the way it was. And uh, you know, it's good to see. Uh, I've been to Minocqua before, and as people know, when I was up there, like when I was a kid, down there, there was nothing there. And I can see why I was being fun up there with a uh, four wheeler. Boat or there's so much stuff to do up there for outdoors. All right, this is a good one. Bob Island wishes Packer fans would remember him as a rookie part-time starter during Green Bay's Super Bowl championship season in 1967, or perhaps as a versatile offensive lineman that enjoyed an 11-year NFL career. But Highland Highland knows that's you know, unlikely. Highland's came to fame. And like it will always be, breaking Green Bay coach Dan Devine's leg in the 1971 season opener. Just one of those spooky things, Highland said. That it was. Green Bay had made Highland an All-American offensive lineman at Boston. I'm sorry, Green Bay had made Highland an All-American offensive lineman at Boston College, the ninth overall pick in the 67 draft. He was supposed to be Packers center of the future, but after three somewhat tumultuous years in Green Bay, Highland was traded to Chicago and was with the Giants in 1971. The season opener that year marked Devine's first as Green Bay's head coach and Highland's first in a Green Bay pack. Blah, blah, blah. I'm the season opener that year marked Devine's first as Green Bay's head coach in Highlands first in a Giants uniform. It was a wet and rainy day, and at one point, Packers determined, Packers defensive back Doug Hart intercepted New York quarterback Brand Tarkenton. Highland took off in pursuit and helped knock Hart out of bounds on the Green Bay sideline. It was sloppy and muddy, and I couldn't stop, Highland said. I kind of went careening off into a bunch of people. It wasn't until after the game the reporters informed Highland that one of those people was Dan Devine. And Highland's hit had shattered Devine's leg in several places. To this day, Packer fans bitter about Devine's failed tenure. Joko is the best thing Highland ever did for the Green Bay organization. But it's that last thing Highland wanted. When reporters came to me after the game and told me what happened, I was like, Jesus. Feels awful, Holland said. But Devine was a class act. He wrote he had read my comments and saw how bad I felt and sent me a telegram. He told me not to feel bad. That he always stood too close to the field anyhow. It was a crazy play. Holland's time in Green Bay was somewhat crazy too. Allen came to Green Bay in 1967 and was expected to step in as center of guard. But the midpoint, the midway point of the rookie season, Allen had become the preferred starter at center over Ken Bowman. But throughout that year, he bumped heads with Ray Winneka, the offensive line coach. Ray would, Ray would we Teka. And I never did get a long from day one, Howland said. He had it in for me. He didn't like my style of play for some reason. 
Packers coach Vince Lombardi seemed to like Highland's play just fine. A six foot five, two hundred sixty pound Highland was big for his area and weighed about twenty more pounds than Bowman. Lombardi liked Highland's size and physicality and started him much of the second half of that season. Highland played most of the Western Conference Championship game against Los Angeles that year, a 28-7 Green Bay win. And although Bowman became famous for the block in the Ice Bowl, the next week, Highland seemed in line to start Super Bowl II. I had been practicing with the number ones that week right up until the end, Highland said. About five minutes left in practice, Bart started bobbing the snap. I don't know if it was my fault or his, but Lombardi decided to make, a, to make the change. I think we Tucker had been in his ear. Well, I was and just walked right out the field. I figured Lombardi would find me, but he didn't. So unfortunately, the Super Bowl wasn't the greatest of memories for me. It's great to win, but I was so darn disappointed. The rest of Highland's career in Green Bay was somewhat disappointing for him as well. When Barty stepped out as head coach after the 67 season, Highland never could crack the starting lineup under coach Phil Bankston. Bowman refused to give up his job at center, and the Packers used a Chris Jones draft choice on guard Billy Luke in 1968, blocking Highland's path there. With all events, it was just wasn't the same, Highland said. I played some guard the next year, and then they drafted Billy Luke. And when we checked that around, I was out of there. Indeed, he was. Highland was traded to Chicago the following the 1969 season, and after a year with the Bears, he was traded to his hometown team, the New York Jets. I'm sorry, the New York Giants. Highland moved to left guard with the Giants and played most minutes on the team in 1971. But in, 17, but in 1972, an old foe reappeared. I had one really good year with the Giants, and they hired a new offensive line coach, Highland recalled. Guess who it was? Good old Ray, good old Ray Witeka. That was after I had let a lot of people and a lot of sports writers know how I felt about him. I learned the hard way not to burn your bridges because he got his revenge. That he did. I only spent most of the uh, 72 and 73 seasons on the bench. But by 74, it was crystal clear to management that Highland was one of the team's best offensive linemen, best five linemen. And despite we tech his presence, Highland started the next two years. To this day, though, Highland holds the grudge against Witeka. And he wishes it was Witeka, not defined on the sideline that day in Green Bay. That would have been beautiful, Highland said. Highland actually came back to Green Bay and played the 76th season behind starting center Larry McCarron. He asked for his release following that year, then played half of the 77 campaign in New England before retiring. It actually felt good to go back, said Highland said. I enjoyed Green Bay a lot. I felt it was a quality organization, and so it was good to go back to a familiar place. One that will always remember him as the man who broke Divine's leg.
I'd rather be remembered with Bowman and Jerry Kramer for the block in the ice bowl, Helen said. But it was what it is. I, I like that one because because I have an uh, audio cassette tape of that game in 1970, and that was a weird game. But, uh, you know, and, and my brother would always tell me about how Bob Holland broke Dubine's leg, you know, so it was like etched in my brain since I was four years old. But uh, I'm going to go on the next guy here. I see this guy on Facebook today, uh, his name's Greg Cook. Looks great. And, uh, they're making they're saying, hey, he's a Packer Hall of Famer and stuff like that. And they call him one of the greatest Packer ever, right? Greatest Packers ever. And I look at that, I'm going, wait a minute here. Whoa, he was a decent offensive lineman, but he wasn't that good. For nine years at Green Bay, Greg Cook made a ton of noise on the football field. He is one of the better right tackles in the game, and he was an enormous part of the Packers' record-setting offenses of the early 1980s. Fortunately or unfortunately for Cook, depending on your perspective, he made as much noise off the field. As one of the more unspoke, outspoken Packers of his era, Cook always told the truth, which ruffled a fair share of feathers along the way. I gave whatever answers I felt, and sometimes that hurt me, Cook said. People thought I was outspoken, and I wasn't, a, and I won't apologize for the things I said. They were things I believed. It should surprise you that Cook is just an outspoken today, as outspoken today. Only now his debating comes in a courtroom and on the radio. When his playing days ended, Cook returned to the University of Arkansas to get his law degree. He's been practicing wire since. In addition, Cook does a daily radio show in Houston. Former NFL defensive end and Dave Kalou. I never could stand the dumb jock connotation, said Cook, who was a chemistry major during his undergraduate days at Arkansas. Larry McCarran and I would go on trips and bring in Newsweek, and just for the argument's sake, we would argue every story that was in there, even if we didn't necessarily believe in something. One of us would argue the opposite point, just to play devil's advocate. We we're going to solve all the world problems. Cook was always trying to solve the Packers' problems, both on and off the field during his time in Green Bay. Cook criticized management for signing number one draft pick Bruce Clark in 1980 and later losing defensive end Mike Butler. It was all about money back then, Cook said. They were just trying to win those exec with those executives win with those executives. They got Ron Wolf in there starting spending started spending money, signed Reggie White, and they won a Super Bowl. Cook wasn't shy when it came to ripping some coaching decisions for us, Greg May. He ran down the football team and the media, Cook said of Greg. Then if you will do well, it's the coach that looks good. But the truth is, he was not a good football coach. Cook continued to pile on Greg even when his days had ended. Greg cut several veterans before the 1986 season. 
including Cook, quarterback Lynn Dickey, tight end Mark Mark, oh my God, and tight end Paul Kaufman. Two seasons later, after Cook landed in Minnesota, Greg left Green Bay to take over an SMU program that had just been handed the death penalty. Every reporter asked for Cook's opinion of the hire. I said he's the perfect guy for the program, Cook recalled. Reporters said, there isn't a program. And I said, exactly. Looking back, Cook regressed this one thing he said. After Greg Cotton in 1986, Cook was signed by Miami and was asked the biggest difference between the two cities. I said in Green Bay, you've got a great wardrobe if you've got just 10 bowling shirts, Cook said. <laughs> that singer made Sports Illustrated's top 100 all-time quotes, and Greg Cook said it was taken out of context. I was trying to poke fun of myself. But it was a stupid remark. I wish I'd never said it, he said. But I've been apologizing for it ever since. Cook had said nothing to apologize. Cook had nothing to apologize for when it came to Green Bay's office in the 1980s. Cook and, his, and the Packers qualified for that playoffs during the strike-shortened season in 1982. That was Green Bay's first trip to the postseason in 10 years. And the only time in Bart Starr's nine-year coaching tenure, the Packers reached the playoffs. Sort of all this chair squeaking, too. 1983, Cook and Green Bay's high-flying offense scored 429 points and ranked second in the NFL in total offense. We had some great players on that team, Cook said. A lot of weapons. Cook was certainly at the heart of the Green Bay success. Starting for eight years, and at one point making 78 consecutive starts, Cook, a second-round draft choice out of Arkansas in 1977, possessed tremendous strength, could bench press 520 pounds in his heyday. And he was arguably the top pass blocker on a Green Bay offensive line that gave Dickey and his talented core of Wilds time to shine. That offense was a lot of fun to play on, Cook said. We didn't really think anyone could stop us. And a lot of times, we were right. Cook talked fondly of the Green Bay's 48-47 win over Washington on Monday Night Football in 1983. He still smiles when talking about the Packers' playoff win over St. Louis, 41-16 in 1982. Thinking about Green Bay's aerial circus, one that, filed, that featured Dickey, Whitehouse, James Lofton, John Jefferson, and tight end Paul Coffin, it remains a great source of pride. It wasn't paradise, but the good certainly outweighed the bad. I had nine great years in Green Bay and absolutely loved my time here. Cook said. I made a lot of great friends there. Some people say the best friends you are make are in high school. Those are the guys I sweated my guts out with and took a lot of black with. And in Cook's case, gave his share of black too. I like that. That bowling shirt joint, that bowling shirt joke, <laughs> it reminds me of my parents because they had every freaking bowling shirt you could ever imagine. And they were always this, they were always this thing of fashion. Um, <coughs> but the thing is for, for Green Bay with Cook was 
Yeah, he gave him stability. And, uh, you know, he wasn't exactly a, he wasn't exactly an elite offensive tackle, but he was good. And with him and McCarron was the rock, his center for years and years. I gave a center there for about 12 years. And, uh, you know, they had some pretty, young, pretty decent offensive linemen then too, but they were fast and quick, but uh, Mel Jackson and, and uh, Cook and McCarron, and there's a couple other ones. Well, Carl Swanky was moved in and out. Um, so yeah, it's you know when they say the Packers' offensive line were smaller back then. Oh yeah, they were. If you look at number 67 on the offensive line, who's about Carl Swanky? He's what? He has six feet six and he was frail. He had he didn't have he didn't have much muscle on him. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Of course, I always think that. But anyways, all right, so. I'm going to read about, the last guy I'm going to read about is Jerry Kramer. He's one of my favorites. And today, Jerry Kramer is finally remembered as one of the greatest offensive guards to ever play for Green Bay Packers. Kramer made arguably the most memorable block in NFL history during the ice bowl. Kramer's 11-year stint in Green Bay included three Pro Bowl selections, a berth on the 1960s All-Decade team, and five NFL championships. But when he looks back, Kramer laughs when he thinks how close he came to having his career in Green Bay cut short. Kramer, Green Bay's first fourth round draft choice in 1958, played his first season under Lucy Goosey, Scooter McLean. And when Vince Lombardi came in the following year, his in-year base approach initially didn't sit well with Kramer. In the early 60s, the Chicago Tribune had just published a story calling Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston the best part of guards in football. Later that same week in practice, the Packers sweep went nowhere. Lombardi went ballistic. He came running up screaming, the best pair of guards in football mine, Kramer said, expletive. And I was already playing, playing hurt. I'd broken two ribs the week before in San Francisco, and I just snapped. I was dead set on punching him in the mall. I was off the pile and I thought, I'll be suspended, I'll get docked my salary, and I'm sure I'll get traded. And I just said, expletive, expletive, it. Just imagine what that word was for it. I'm going to hit him. I was so angry and so out of control. So I walked over by him and he wouldn't look at me. He just turned away. Finally, I got over my anger and decided to walk the sidelines. Well, five or six minutes, just the right amount of time for me to cool off. Lombardi came down, passed me on the shoulder, rose my hair. It was good for both of us. I didn't hit him. That was it. That it was. With Kramer playing right guard, Green Bay won national. Won National Football League championships in 61, 62, and 65. Green Bay also won the Super Bowl titles in 66 and 67. Kramer received some form of All-Pro honors on six occasions and was named to the All-NFL First Team. First 50, uh, first 50 year team. 
and Kramer block on Dallas Jethro Peel sprung quarterback Bar Star for a game-winning touchdown in the Ice Bowl, one of the most famous football games ever played. To this day, his omission from Hall of Fame is one of the great mysteries of the sport. Out of every guy that was on the first 50 years all-football team, I'm the only one not in the Hall of Fame, he said. Does it bother me? A little bit, but not a lot. Don't let Kramer completely fool you. There's a part of him that's extremely agitated. And many have taken measures to help Kramer reach the Hall of Fame some someday. Got that done. Kramer's very own website, jerrykramer.com, makes a case for him. Kramer's daughter, Alicia, also started the nationwide campaign to get support for her father's enshrinement. So far, though, Kramer's been left out in the cold. And I believe in 2017, they inducted him into the Hall of Fame. So this book was written in 2012. The way I look at it is football has been so good to me. It's given me so many presents. After so many years, it would seem a little childish to be exposed exploitative off an honor you didn't get. There's only that's both the only honor Kramer didn't get. But when history remembers Kramer, he will always be linked to the ice bowl. Trailing 17 to 14 to Dallas in the 1967 NFL championship game. The Packers were out of timeouts. Pitched a third and goal from the Green for the Cowboys one yard line. With 16 seconds left, Lombardi bypassed a potential tying field goal, electing to go for the victory instead. So here's one, I got a nice picture in here. Can you put that on camera of uh, Kramer? That's cool. Excellent. Yes, I like pictures too. That was a that's a good one right there. It's 1960-1959. The play was supposed to be handout to Chuck Mercine, but Star was leery of Mercine slipping and decided to run a quarterback sneak instead. Kramer found a rare piece of field that was that wasn't iced over, it came off the ball fast. And hard and immediately leveled Peel with a perfect cut block. Center Ken Bowman finished Peel off and giving Starr the wedge opening he needed. Starr snuck in. Packers had one of the most dramatic victories in league history, and Kramer was part of the NFL's most legendary block. People want to always talk about that play, but what personifies the character and makeup of that football team was the drive. Kramer said, referring to the 12-play, 68-yard march to win the game. That was a perfect example of what those teams were all about. On that drive, we were absolutely brilliant. Chuck Mercine, Donnie Anderson, Boyd Dollar, barred the entire offensive line. They were all outstanding. The legendary plays will provide the ideal ending for a book Kramer and sports writer Dick Shop were working on. Throughout 1967, Kramer kept a diary 
of the Packers season when they ended with a victory in Super Bowl II. The publicity generated by the Ice Bowl, a game that was later reported the greatest game in NFL history, helped instant replay become one of the best-selling sport books of all time. It was an interesting experience and said it was and it was fun to see what see that world, Kramer said. Pro football is a very closed world. You either part of the team or you're not. But the whole experience was pretty good. Kramer's post-football experiences have been awfully great, too. And despite multiple efforts, Kramer hasn't been able to bring himself to retire. Kramer went into commercial diving business. Then had apartments with former Packer Donnie Chandler. He started a film company in Los Angeles and dabbled in the restaurant business. He also worked with oil and gas exploration, coal mining, telecommunications and nutrition, and did consulting work for a, secure, for a security company in a hospital group. I've tried it like three or four times and it just didn't work. It just didn't sit very well with me, Kramer said. There's so many things I still want to do and I'm not slowing down at all. In fact, I'm as busy as I've ever been, but I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Kramer's first to admit Nothing compares to playing on Sundays. Those were incredible times and some incredible men. Kramer said, you won't, you won't get groups of guys like that very often. Nor will you get many people like Jerry Kramer. Kramer was. I met Kramer uh, three or four times and I just, the guy, you go to him, he's going to tell you everything he knows about football. And he doesn't ever, he doesn't hold the bars back. He talks about Lombardi in a certain way too that you never heard about. And, uh, you know, he treated himself very, treated us like dogs. <laughs> Anyways, if nobody else has told you they love you today, I do. And that is with the power of love. Thanks.